Good morning. Thank you, worship team. As always, every Lord's Day, God blesses our hearts as, as the worship team brings us together. We join our voices, our voices together, uh, join our minds together, and sing these praises to our Lord. And today was no exception. So thank you. So as we enter um, the Advent season here at Pacific Hope, we've, we're taking a little bit of a, a detour, uh, a little br- bit of a break from our, uh, our series that our brother Matthew has been leading us in, teaching us from the book of James. And uh, we're going to consider for a few weeks the topic of, of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's appropriate. Uh, it's fitting that we do that. Typically, we, as you know, we, we teach through books of the Bible exegetically, and, and that is appropriate and, and uh, the right way to be done. But there are times when it's also correct to look at certain events, certain key topics that the Bible presents to us and exegetically consider what the Word of God has to say about that. And so that's what we're seeking to do. And so in order to do this this morning, I would like us to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 25, and that will be our text. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Often we, we ask that you stand together for the reading of the Word of God out of uh, reverence and respect for the Word of God. And so if you're able, I would like to ask you to do that again this morning as we read this passage of Scripture. Beginning with verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time as we just consider these words. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of meeting together with your, uh, with your body, visible body here in this location. 
at this time. We thank you for the passage of scripture that we have just read and, and the delight and joy that it is to our hearts. And we pray that you would guide our thoughts this morning, that we would not be distracted by any thoughts that might enter into our mind, by any confusion on the part of the speaker. But Father, that you would teach us from your word that our hearts would be full of your glory and that we might uh, give you much praise. Help us again, we pray, Lord, in our name, uh, the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this text highlights one of the most important, significant doctrines of the Christian faith. Also, this text highlights one of the most relevant and impactful elements of what it means to be and live as a Christian. In this age of competing religious faith systems, including the exceedingly dangerous notion that there are multiple equally legitimate approaches to spiritual significance. And notice, I'm reluctant to use the word truth, for in our day, many, if not most, do not believe there really is such a thing as objective truth, or if there is, we cannot know it. In this age of the popular cultural assumption of religious pluralism. It is as important as it ever has been that we, the children of God and followers of Jesus Christ, embrace and hold on to with an ironclad grip without compromise the essential non-negotiable teaching of the sacred scriptures, the very word of God. Such is the importance of this text set before us this morning. Now, of course, we're quite familiar with this text, and we revel in it at least once every year. But our familiarity must not cause us to take these precious things lightly or to consider the retelling of this marvelous story as simply quaint or sweet or mundane. By God's grace, may we once again be deeply moved by the glory of the story. Or as the Apostle Matthew put it, the way the birth of Jesus Christ took place. We see it in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And already, we are intrigued. But we know that this was not just a fascinating event. This is not just a remarkable birth. This birth is miraculous. It was a miracle. For a few minutes this morning, I want us to ponder this story. And to do so, we will think about what we know about the earthly father, Joseph. And then we must, of course, consider what our text tells us about the mother, Mary. And finally, we should consider 
what we are told about the birth of the baby, Emmanuel, and what it all means for us today. And keep in mind, this is a very Jewish story with meaning for all people, all tribes, all races. So what about Joseph? He's a very important character in this event, even in his supporting role in the bigger story, the meta-narrative. Our text tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when Mary, his mother, Mar or excuse me, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Let's briefly consider the cultural implications of betrothal. I believe next week, Sean is going to dig a little deeper into this and, and instruct us regarding this matter. But for now, we recognize that this betrothal was a formal statement of intent to marry. Like a contract. Uh, like a contract to marry. More than our contemporary engagement, this betrothal was so significant that if a betrothed couple were to call off the actual marriage, it would be considered a divorce with all the cultural ramifications of divorce. So a couple would not hastily or carelessly enter into a betrothal. It was serious business in a culture that wholly embraced the sanctity of the marriage union, somewhat unlike our culture today. The verse tells us uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit before they came together. Matthew goes out of his way to emphasize this fact. Let us go out of our way to understand it. Mary was found to be with child, our text says. She was pregnant. But Joseph was not the father of her child. To further establish that fact, in verse 25, we read, He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And that was even after they were married. It was utterly impossible that Joseph was the father of Mary's child. Now notice... The genealogy listed in verses 1 through 16 here. In every instance, we see the phrase, the father of, including Jacob, the father of Joseph, until we come to Joseph. You see this? Let's just briefly look randomly here, beginning with verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And, 
and on and on. It goes through the whole genealogy, uh, right on through. Mothers are occasionally listed, but the, but the point is the father of, the father of, the father of, with this mother, the father of, right on down through, uh, through the line of David, through Solomon. It all goes down. Let's just pick it up, say it's uh, uh, verse 15, so we can read some names that are hard to pronounce. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. And then Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. That is significant. You see, Matthew wanted us to be sure to know for certain that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Well, someone was the father of Mary's child. If not Joseph, then who? Well, Matthew doesn't intend to turn this into a mystery. He tells us right off the bat who the Father is, the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And we will return to that. But for now, Joseph only knows that the one who is betrothed to him is with child. And he absolutely knows he is not the father. The only natural explanation at that time could be that Mary had been unfaithful. That is all he could think. And that in the Jewish culture is a scandal. In fact, in that culture, according to the old covenant civil law, Mary is a candidate for being stoned to death because of this. So we read in verse 19, and her husband, Joseph. See these words, and her husband, Joseph. And calling Joseph her husband here shows the weight of this betrothal relationship in this very Jewish story. And her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Being a just man is to say that he was a strict keeper of the law. And as a keeper of the law, he would be unable to marry her. But he was also a compassionate man and was not willing to make a spectacle of her to publicly expose her. The law did allow for various circumstances which could have spared Mary's life, but certainly not her marriage to a just man. So Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly, that is, 
privately. The godly Bishop J.C. Ryle tells us this is a very beautiful example of godly wisdom and tender consideration for others. But it couldn't be denied, and Mary didn't deny it. He saw the appearance of evil in her who was his espoused wife. And verse 20 says, as he considered these things. Joseph, being a just man, was thinking through how he wanted to handle this. No hasty decisions here. He did, not, he did nothing rashly. No losing his temper and jumping to conclusions. He waited patiently to have the line of duty made clear. He was considering what to do. In all probability, laying the matter before God in prayer. When the angel came to him in a dream with amazing information. Verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Staggeringly profound. Let it sink in. Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, Joseph. She wasn't unfaithful to you. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the baby will be named Jesus. Jehovah saves. Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. I want to come back to this. In a moment, but I think it is worth noting, again, Joseph's response. Verses 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He was a righteous man. In light of this amazing declaration and in spite of the absolute uniqueness, human impossibility of this angelic charge, our text tells us he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He formally, officially married her but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now I want to briefly think about Mary. And Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us very much about Mary. We learn more about Mary's role and experience, her character, in Luke's account of the birth 
of Jesus. In fact, it seems that the main point that Matthew was trying to express regarding Mary is that Mary was in fact the mother of Jesus and that Mary was a virgin when she conceived and still was when she gave birth to her son. That's what Matthew's telling us here. Do you see the emphasis here? We've already highlighted the words before they came together. As the angel was saying to Joseph, do not fear to take her as your wife. Joseph had seen that Mary was with child. She was at least about four months pregnant. Luke informs us in his gospel account. When she returned from her visit with her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, one could see that she was pregnant. So to counter Joseph's natural and reasonable conclusions, the angel makes the amazing declaration that Mary's child was conceived from the Holy Spirit. This announcement, as I said, is staggering, uh, staggeringly profound. Not merely because the virgin somehow miraculously was pregnant, but also that her baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It declares that the father of the one to be called Jehovah saves, this one is the, the father is that God, the Holy Spirit, God himself is Jesus father. This one is the Christ, the anointed one, the long awaited Messiah, the one who has come to fulfill God's plan of redemption. That is, he will save his people from their sins but it is absolutely essential. We must make no mistake about it. Mary was a virgin upon whom the Holy Spirit would come as Luke explained to her and the power of the Most High would overshadow. Now, there is much more that can and ought to be said about Mary to appreciate and admire this godly young woman. Luke informs us more thoroughly about her, about her character, and how she responds to these events. But for the sake of time this morning, and to keep to what our text emphasizes, the point Matthew wants to drive home, I'm driving home, is that Mary had not been unfaithful. She was not promiscuous. She was not immoral. She was a virgin. And one, Luke informs us, who found favor with God. And this is more than just a wonderful story. For our very salvation rests on the historical reality of this miracle that occurred in time and space. And that is why I belabor the point, you see, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Matthew adds this commentary in verses 22 and 23. Behold, 
or excuse me, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The child Mary carries in her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit. His name is Jesus, Jehovah saves. And now we are told that he is none other than the fulfillment of the prophecy that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And this speaks to Jesus' divinity, conceived from the Holy Spirit. But it also speaks of Jesus' humanity born of the Virgin Mary. No other understanding of the nature of this one can be orthodox. Any other view is heresy. Jesus, as declared in the Gospels, is both divine and human, the God-man. His birth secures that Emmanuel has come. God is with us. So we are referenced by Matthew back to the prophet Isaiah. Turn there. Isaiah in chapter 7. Let's look there at this prophet. Isaiah chapter 7. And very briefly, let me give us a little context. Here's the short version. Around 735 B.C., Syria and Israel had allied themselves against Judah, intending to destroy Jerusalem. Ahaz, the king of Judah, was greatly troubled, trying to find a way to defend Jerusalem and thwart this aggression. In the midst of his planning, the prophet Isaiah came to him and told him not to be afraid. God would destroy both those nations and protect Judah. Look at verses 3 through 7. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Just a brief um, interjection here. A brief, I think one of the one of the remarkable things here in the the writing uh, of this from from uh, Isaiah's prophecy is this sets us right in time and space. Okay, there was a place this took place. This happened. Um, there was a place. It was at Jerusalem, but not just at Jerusalem. Um, uh, our King Ahab was trying to find a way to cut off the water supply to uh, take all the, all the water away from Syria and Israel so that maybe they would get so thirsty they would go away and leave Jerusalem. There's a place where this took place. Isaiah went there to this place. And verse 4, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I like that. Sometimes I think we should call our enemy countries smoldering stumps of firebrands. 
Oh, yes. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. The problem was Ahaz did not believe Isaiah and did not trust God to deliver him from the enemies. He knew he was in trouble, but in his fear was fretfully ignoring Isaiah's counsel and was wanting to trust in his own cleverness for his salvation to take matters into his own hands. So Isaiah challenged Ahaz to ask God for a sign, any sign, no matter how extravagant. He said that no matter what Ahaz would request, the Lord would grant it as confirmation of faith in God. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But instead of gratefully accepting this offer and resting and trusting in God, Ahaz, in his unbelief, pretended humility. Oh, my goodness. Look at this, this response, this self-righteous response of Ahaz. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, come on, Ahaz. The prophet of God has just told you to do it. He is not, you are not putting the Lord to the test. God has said to do this. Nevertheless, he feigned the self-righteousness and Isaiah was indignant. Spurgeon tells us that he told Ahaz that since he will not in obedience to God's command ask a sign, behold, the Lord himself will give him one. Not simply a sign, but the sign. The sign and wonder of the world, the mark of God's mightiest mystery and of his most consummate wisdom. We read in verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And now in our text, about 740 years later, Matthew informs us that this event is the fulfillment of that prophecy. As Paul instructs us 
In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, look at on the screen there. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is Emmanuel, God with us. The Redeemer has come. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we must let that sink in. What does it mean? What means God with us? We just read Paul's explanation. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God, the creator, stepped into his creation and became one of us. Joined with us. Was with us. Why? Why would the almighty God so profoundly humble himself and condescend to be one of us. Imagine this, the infinite identifying with the finite, the immortal taking on mortality. He who knew no sin became sin. The creator linked with the creature the unbounded one lying as an infant in his mother's arms. We have here the union of two natures, divine and human, in the person of Jesus. Why? God with us. Paul told us to redeem those who were under the law to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. The angel told Joseph to save his people from their sins. And again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we read, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is exactly what he has done and is doing even today. You see, the Christmas story does not end away in a manger. Indeed, the story has not yet ended, for he is still saving his people from their sins. God is still with us. With us in and for our salvation. Philippians 2 verses 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is with us in our trials and temptations. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 Remind us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What he doesn't know is the shame and the sorrow and the guilt and the pain that we know when we sin and as a result of our sin. But he knows even more about all that. He knows what it means to be forsaken of the father. And that as an innocent man. He knows what it means to bear the guilt of our sins. Indeed, not ours only, but the sins of the world. He knows, brothers and sisters, he is with us. He's with us in our daily ponderings and activities. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We were talking about this uh, Thursday night at the men's study. And Pastor Mark pointed out to us that the context of this verse is that Jesus is speaking to the believers at the church in Laodicea. And by extension, the believers at Pacific Hope Church. This verse is not, as it is most often misunderstood, an appeal for unbelievers to receive Jesus. Rather, it is a call to believers to recognize the presence of Emmanuel and to fellowship with him at all times. Brothers and sisters, if you do not have a sense that God is with you, it is not because he has abandoned you. It is likely because you have shut him out. I have done this at various times in my own life. So I implore you, dear Christian, hear his voice and open the door. God 
is with us. But sadly, I must add to this Advent message that there are many, many in our world today, even in our own city, perhaps even in our own church, who completely miss the point of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What about you? Don't fall prey to the counterfeit story, the touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy nursery rhyme about a cute little baby born in a stable. This historic account is literally a matter of life and death. We are about to partake of the Lord's table. We are about to enjoy the communion service, but we know we are instructed that the table is reserved for only those who have put their only hope for salvation in the Lord of glory. It is reserved for only those who by faith have trusted in and are trusting in the one who came to save his people from their sins. And it is only those who can take comfort and encouragement in the declaration that God is with us. Are you one of those this morning? Are you one of us? You can be, you know. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel that Emmanuel has come. That the way to salvation has been secured. Trust in Christ. Embrace his life, his death, and resurrection on your behalf. Believe. Hold fast the gospel. And for those of us here this morning who have been adopted into the family of God, as Paul told us, by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, who believe and understand the deeply profound message of the miracle of the incarnation, we can revel in the amazing grace of God. We can properly, according to the sacred truth, celebrate the miracle of God with us in the incarnation of the God-man, the birth of Jesus. Now, perhaps there are some here today who are in such dire straits that you can find no rest, no peace, even in the announcement of the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. Could it be the furor over this current pandemic has caused you to fear or become discouraged or some other disease or illness? God is with us. And he controls all sicknesses. He is the great physician. In light of that, is your heart broken because of the seemingly untimely passing? As mine is... <laughs> Of our beloved pastor leader. 
God is with us. And he is our chief shepherd. He will not leave us shepherdless. And through the veil of our grief, we know that our dear brother is right now seeing him as he is and rejoicing in glory. Are you dismayed at the reduction, uh, the direction our homeland, our nation is heading? God is with us. And he alone is king of kings and lord of lords. He is building his kingdom. He is building his church. And the very gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Oh, Christian, remember the occasion of the prophecy of Isaiah. In the midst of fear or sadness or frustration, remember the sign, Emmanuel, God with us. And he has told us he will remain with us. He is infinitely long-suffering. According to the writer of Hebrews, the promise God made to Joshua applies to us. He said to Joshua, and the writer of Hebrews applies to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with us. Jesus told his disciples, and by extension, us, in Matthew 18, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is still with us. Believe him, brothers and sisters. Trust him and obey. So let me close with a quote from our Dear brother, Charles Spurgeon, he said, this is his name, God with us, God with us by his incarnation for the august creator of the world did walk upon this globe. He who made 10,000 orbs, each of them more mighty and more vast than this earth became the inhabitant of this tiny atom. He who was from everlasting to everlasting came to this world of time and stood upon the narrow neck of land between the two unbounded seas. God with us. He has not lost that name. Jesus had that name on earth and he has it now in heaven. He is now God with us. Believer, he is God with thee to protect thee. Thou art not alone because the Savior is with thee. Put me in the desert where vegetation grows not. I can still say God with us. Put me on the wild ocean and let my ship dance madly on the waves. I would still say Emmanuel. God with us. 
mount me on the sunbeam and let me fly beyond the western sea. Still, I would say, God, with us, let my body dive down to the depths of the ocean and let me hide in its caverns. Still, I could, as a child of God, say, God, with us. I, and in the grave, sleeping there in corruption, still I can see the footmarks of Jesus. He trod the path of all his people, and still his name is God with us. Amen. Let's pray. Let's thank him. Oh, Father, how we need the comfort of knowing that you are with us, that this miraculously event, uh, this miraculous event that took place in history, where you deigned to bow down and become one of us, has secured for us our eternal hope of glory. Oh, thank you, Father, and thank you for the promises that you, even now, are with us. We give you glory and thanksgiving. In the name of Yeshua, amen.